You found a podcast where you'll hear the truth, and we will praise Jesus' name. We stand for the Bible and won't back down from it, although it don't bring much fame. Some folks will like it, some will try to deny it, but God's Word will always stand true. It's been tried in the fire, still Hello, friends and faithful listeners. It's time for the Pod King Bible Study. I'm your co-host, Donald King, and I'm joined by the host of this study, Brother Donnie King. On this podcast, we study the Bible from its original languages so we can understand the Word of God more clearly. We look at current events and news in light of Scripture, and we also examine some of the things going on within our culture from a biblical perspective. This is Monday, February the 12th, episode number 155, Reject the Light and You Will Die, John 8, 12 through 30. In our last episode, we looked into some very deep things. We talked about how the Bible says that God charged his angels with folly and how the heavens are not even clean in his sight. We had a little debate concerning whether the angels were created perfect or perfectly created. We also threw the creation of man into this line of thinking as well. Then we tackled a couple of other tough topics. How did the angels sin? There are only a few options, but the one that we believe makes the most sense biblically is that they had free will. If any of these things strike your interest, join us today. In today's study, we go over how Jesus told the people that he is the light of the world. He told to people that day that his judgment is true and that theirs was not true. He said that if they knew the Father, they would have known him as well. He slapped them with a statement that they would die in their sins. And even despite this, there were many people in the crowd who still believed on him. We highly encourage you to come along, join us in this study today, and we believe it will be beneficial to you. Now for the teaching of God's Word and the lesson for today, I'll turn it to the host of this podcast, Brother Donnie King. Well, we appreciate you stopping by for another episode of the Pod King Bible Study. Yes, sir. We're glad for all of you who are tuning in right now. We thank God for you upon every remembrance of you, just like Paul said in some of his epistles that he wrote to the churches. Boy, here you go trying to act like you're the Apostle Paul now. No, I'm not trying to act like I'm Paul, but he did say for us to follow him, even as he also followed Christ. Yeah, well, I know that, but there's a difference between following Paul and being Paul. Okay, well, let's just act like I never quoted Paul now, especially on a Bible study, for goodness sake. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Yeah, I'm pretty sure I do. I don't know what you have against Paul, though. (laughs) Well, it isn't Paul that I have a problem with. Oh, so, oh, well, I reckon that only leaves one more option, and this isn't looking good. Mm, Well, if the shoe fits, wear it. That's what I've always heard. Yeah, but Paul probably wore sandals, best as I can understand. Well, you cut it out. Ever since I started being more like Paul, you haven't treated me right. <laughs> You're not acting like Paul. You're acting like more like a... Hey, don't uh, get started with name-calling. <laughs> like I said, I believe you have somewhat against me. Now you're quoting Jesus as if it's talking about you. Who would you rather me be like? <laughs> you know good and well I don't have anything against you or I wouldn't be here with you right now. Well, you got a point. And speaking of someone having something against someone else, we're fixing to see this up close and personal in today's study. You know that? Yeah, you definitely got that right. So why don't we just jump right into our lesson for today? I believe we will. And I'm going to begin by reading John 8, verse 12 down through 20. All right. Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. 
The Pharisees therefore said unto him, Thou bearest record of thyself. Thy record is not true. Jesus answered and said unto them, Though I bear record of myself, yet my record is true, for I know whence I came and whither I go. But ye cannot tell whence I come and whither I go. Ye judge after the flesh, I judge no man. And yet if I judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone, but I am the Father that sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one that bear witness of myself, and the Father that sent me beareth witness of me. Then said they unto him, Where is thy father? Jesus answered, Ye neither know me nor my father. If ye had known me, ye should have known my father also. These words spake Jesus in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no man laid hands on him, for his hour was not yet come. So in verse 12, Jesus spake again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. I would love to ask those who believe that John 7 and 53 through 8 and 11 doesn't belong in the Bible. Who is Jesus saying this to in verse 12 then? If you take out the portion that's in question here, the last people mentioned would be the Sanhedrin in their conversation about Jesus. Well, we know that Jesus wasn't involved in their secret meeting. Uh, This had to be the people who assembled that morning to hear him teach. I agree. And this was also after salvaging the woman who was taken in the very act of adultery that he proclaimed this to those who were in the audience. He declared to them, I am the light of the world. Multiple scriptures attest to the fact that Jesus is the light. Well, this is true, but he is specifically the light of the world. He is the light to the world in the same manner. He said that those who follow him shall not walk in darkness. Well, you can't walk in the light and have darkness too. No, that's true. The Greek word for follow here is akaluthio. Akaluthio means to obey or be one's disciple. Jesus is telling them that if they would follow him, if they would become his disciple, they will never have to worry about walking in darkness. Darkness is a Greek word skotia, and it means a lack of light. Well, you will never want for light when you follow Christ. Amen. I hope you notice the strong undercurrent that is inherent in what Jesus just said. He was taking a pretty stiff jab at the religious leaders when he made the statement. If you follow me you will have light. Yeah, well, I believe he was also saying if you follow them, you'll have darkness. That's true. One couldn't follow him and be his disciple while also following the religious leaders and be their disciple too. Those who follow Jesus will have the light of life. You know, this is powerful because he is the light of the world and he is the light of life. Amen. He said as long as he was in the world, he's the light of the world in John 9 and 5. Matter of fact, if you want to go back and look at Jesus mentioned as the light, You see that in John 1 and 4, John 1 and 9, John 3 and 19 through 21, going forward to John 12 and 46, and then to Acts 26 and 18, and then you can go back to Isaiah 42 and 6, and I I guess time would fail me to tell of all the places where the Lord is mentioned as the light. I also want to note here before moving on that one of the names of the Messiah that the Jews were looking for was light. This is alluded to in Isaiah 49 and 6, Isaiah 60, verse 1, 2, and 3, and Luke chapter 2 and verse 32. Now, the Pharisees began to say unto him, you're bearing record of yourself, and your record is not true. This is verse 13 and 14. Jesus answered and said unto them, even though I bear record of myself, my record's still true, for I know where I came from and where I'm going. (laughs) He said, you can't tell whence I come and whither I go. You know, the Pharisees were challenging Jesus and his claims right here. 
Yeah, and it appears that they might have even used his own words against him. Because back in John 5 and 31, he said, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. Now he's saying that his witness is true, even though he's bearing witness of himself. The point here is if he bore witness of himself, his witness would not be true. But now he's saying the exact reverse, it appears. Well, have they caught Jesus in a lie or a discrepancy? We know that Jesus is the truth, according to John fourteen six. That's right. And we also know that Jesus is true and faithful, according to Revelation 3 and 14. He is the true and faithful witness. All right. So how could Jesus argue the same thing two completely different ways and still be right? Okay, there's a catch here because Jesus was speaking from a legal aspect in John 5 and 31. He was referring to the testimony given in a legal case, such as would be stated from Deuteronomy 17 and 6 and Deuteronomy 19 and 15. Let me read you those two scriptures in that order. At the mouth of two witnesses or three witnesses shall he that is worthy of death be put to death, but at the mouth of one witness he shall not be put to death. One witness shall not rise up against a man for any iniquity or for any sin in any sin that he sinneth. At the mouth of two witnesses or at the mouth of three witnesses shall the matter be established. Jesus said that he can witness and bear record for himself because he knows where he came from and where he's going. Well, you know, that makes sense. But then he rebuked him for not recognizing where he came from and for having no idea where he was going. The implications, of course, are that he is from heaven sent by the Father, and that he is returning there to be with the Father again. That's true. He took the argument a little further in verses 15 and 16. He said, you judge after the flesh, I judge no man. Then he said, but if I do judge, my judgment's true, for I'm not alone. I am the Father that sent me. Jesus is revealing the error of their judgment in his lengthy response here, and it's because they judge after the flesh. And they were guilty of judging things by external means. They looked at the outward things to figure out the inner workings, but that form of judgment is terribly polluted. That's true. Well, they were not spiritually minded enough to make the right judgments, and that's what he's telling them. He had already told them as much back in chapter 7, verse 24, judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. Well, they were used to judging by what they saw. Yeah, and if we're not careful, we'll do the same thing today. Instead of relying on the Spirit of God to reveal to us and show us and lead us, we'll just judge by what we see. He was showing them that they were in the presence of light, but they still couldn't see well enough to make the right judgments. Now, think about what that implicated. Jesus contrasted himself with them and stated, I don't judge any man. And that takes us back to John 3 and 17 and John 12 and 47. Well, he goes on to say that even if he does judge, his judgment is true because he is not alone. The Father's with him. Therefore, his judgment will always be true. That is so right. Verse 17 and 18, he began to tell them, It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one that bear witness of myself, and the Father that sent me beareth witness of me. He goes forward with his reasoning, and he completely demolishes their argument by turning their own law that they clung to on top of their heads. What does Jesus mean when he brings up the law and calls it your law? Well, I believe it's a slap at them for thinking that they had a monopoly on the law. The law of which he spoke, I told you, is in Deuteronomy 19 and 15, Deuteronomy 17 and 6, and probably also Numbers 35 and 30. What he was saying is the law said one witness shouldn't rise up against any man for any iniquity or any sin. It's got to be in the mouth of two or three witnesses. Numbers 35 and 30 speaks along those same lines. Whoso killeth any person, the murderer, shall be put to death by the mouth of witnesses. But one witness shall not testify against any person to cause him to die. 
The testimony of one man is not sufficient, but if you got two men, it is believed to be true. You know, Jesus said he is the first witness and his father is the second. That's what I like about Jesus. He always has a way of putting them in their place. Yes, he does. Let's go ahead and read verse 19 to 20. They say unto him, where is thy father? Jesus answered, you neither know me nor my father. If you had known me, you should have known my father also. These words spake Jesus in the treasury as he taught them in the temple, and no man laid hands on him, for his hour was not yet come. You know, the Pharisees make me sick, for they mockingly asked Jesus, where is your father? Yeah, but Jesus gave them the plain truth by telling them that they didn't know him nor his father. Well, you know, that should have been shocking to them, for they obviously knew who he was, or that was at least what they thought. They may have had a cursory knowledge of him, but they didn't truly know him. They might have had a cursory knowledge of the Father, but they still didn't really know him either. Well, you know, he was basically telling them, if you recognized me, you wouldn't be having to ask the identity of my Father. That's true. John tells the location where this last discourse took place, and it happened in the treasury. Some use this to prove the idea that John 7 and 53 through 8 and 11 doesn't belong in our Bibles, but they stop a sentence too soon. Well, John also reminds us that Jesus was teaching in the temple, which lines up with what was said back in John 8 and 2. That's right. To me, this gives great validation to this. But for a little more verification, the treasury was located near the Gentile court, which is where I've told you in the previous study where I thought that they were at anyway. I'm going to go ahead and read John 8 and 21 through 30 to finish our passage that we're going to be studying today. Then said Jesus again unto them, I go my way, and ye shall seek me, and shall die in your sins. Whither I go, ye cannot come. Then said the Jews, Will he kill himself? Because he saith, Whither I go, ye cannot come. And he said unto them, Ye are from beneath, I am from above, ye are of this world, I am not of this world. I said therefore unto you that ye shall die in your sins, for if you believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. Then said they unto him, Who art thou? And Jesus saith unto them, Even the same that I said unto you from the beginning. I have many things to say and to judge of you, but he that sent me is true, and I speak to the world those things which I have heard of him. They understood not that he spake to them of the Father. Then said Jesus unto them, When ye have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall ye know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things. And he that sent me is with me. The Father hath not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. As he spake these words, many believed on him. There in verse 21 and 22, Jesus tells them, I'm going my way. You're going to seek me, but you're going to die in your sins. He told them that even though they sought him, they were going to end up dying in their sins because where he's going, they could not come. This is very similar to what Jesus said back in John 7 and 34 through 36 and what he'll be saying in John 13 and 33. You know, I think it's very interesting how he says, "Ye shall seek me and ye shall die in your sins. Does this speak of them seeking him earnestly, but they waited too late? Does this speak of them seeking him to kill him? And this is why they'll die in their sins. Well, that's a good question, and, and it, it could mean both, really. And I'm not just trying to say that just to satisfy your mind, but I really wonder exactly what all it would mean. He tells them that where he's going, they will not be able to come, which I'm certain he's talking about heaven there, yeah. to be back with the Father. But once again, he speaks pretty plain unto them, but they can't understand or comprehend anything he's talking about. If you connect verse 21 and 22 with verse 24, we see that they're going to die in their sins because they will seek him and not be able to find him. But it also means because they didn't believe in him. Well, yeah, that, that much is sure. They, they wouldn't be trying to kill him if they knew who he was. Verse 23 and 24, Jesus tells them, you're from beneath, I am from above. 
you're from this world. I'm not of this world. That's why I said unto you, you're going to die in your sins. For if you believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. You know, the bluntness of Christ is simply amazing here. He tells them that they are from beneath and he is from above. Yeah, and there's really two ways that this could be taken, and one is much stronger than the other. He may have simply been saying that they are from the earth and he's from heaven. The word beneath is Cato. Cato means below or the bottom. We see this case strengthened by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 and 47. The first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. But the second option is, is he may have been telling them that they are the children of hell and he is from heaven. Well, you know, this might seem to be too strong for some in our audience, but the implications are certainly here in this chapter for in verse 44, he tells them that they are of the devil. He actually goes as far as to claim the devil as their father. Yeah, and guess what? If the devil is your father, that would make you children of hell. That's right. So when he told them that they were of this world, it's a little reminiscent to me of 1 John 4 and 5, where John says, they are of the world. Therefore speak they of the world, and the world heareth them. He follows this by stating that he's not of this world, and it's reiterated in John 17, verse 14, 15, and 16. Well, you know, he declared that they will die in their sins if they refuse to believe that he is the one. Yeah, and that reminds me of Mark 16 and 16, and I'll read that to you. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. To me, if you fail to believe, this is a pretty good definition of dying in your sins, to be damned and be lost forever. One thing I do want to point out right here is that we read it, for if you believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. The word he is not in the original Greek text. If you'll notice, it is typed in italics. You know, I've never noticed that before. So what does this mean? Well, it means that that he was added by the translators when they were translating it to make it more easily understood what was being said. The original quotation was, for if you believe not that I am, you shall die in your sins. You know, some may think you're taking this farther than you should by using it that way, though. They might, but later in the same chapter, Jesus is going to make it much clearer for all of us. In John 8 and 58, in about 30-something more verses, he's going to make it even more clear that he was before Abraham and that he is the I Am. This was a bold declaration of his deity. It was him claiming to be the I Am of Exodus 3 and 14. Isn't there something like seven of these I Am statements in the Gospel of John? Yeah, well, the I am statements, it's confusing because he says it often, but there's seven that they say are distinct and different. I personally lean towards there's more in the teens or near 20 of them in the book of John, and I can prove that if you want the list of them. The I am statements in John 8 and 24 and 8 and 58 are sometimes overlooked by scholars even. In both instances, though, our King James Version has I am he, but in the original Greek text, he is missing. I am It's a statement of self-existence, and therefore it's also a denial of being created by any power or any force. I am is first-person speech, while Yahweh is actually third-person speech. It comes from the root word where we get I am literally. Yahweh means the one who is. Well, this means that he always has been, and he will forever be. Amen. Uncreated, unable to be destroyed, he is, and he is I am. (laughs) That's right. All right, going into verse 25 and 26. Then said they unto him, Who art thou? And Jesus said unto them, Even the same that I said unto you from the beginning. I have many things to say and to judge of you, but he that sent me is true, and I speak to the world those things that I have heard of him. 
As their conversation progresses, they ask Jesus, who are you? Jesus told them he is the same as he said unto them from the beginning, which is a little difficult for some to follow. Is he referencing an early time when they had spoken with him? Or could he be talking about the beginning of time and creation? Well, there's people who stand on each side of those options, and it would nearly be impossible to nail it down with certainty. Jesus told them in verse 44 that the devil was a murderer from the beginning. Okay, so just think of it in that standpoint. The problem is this. The phrase ho-arche can also be interpreted as from the beginning, but it can also be translated as all along and all together. So when he makes that statement in verse 44 about the devil, I believe he's saying he's been a liar and a murderer all along, all together, ever since. So I really think that we could look at it in that sense right here when he says from the beginning, it could mean that he has been saying this all along. You know, if either of those are correct, it makes sense and retain its full meaning and emphasis. Yeah, even the same that I said to you all along, even the same that I have been telling you all together. Well, Jesus said that he had many things to say unto them and to judge of them. He declares that the one who sent him is true, which reminds me of John 7 and 28. Then cried Jesus in the temple as he taught, saying, You both know me, and you know whence I am, and I am not come of myself. But he that sent me is true, whom you know not. Romans 3 and 4 ties in with this. God forbid, yea, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings, and mightest overcome when thou art judged. Once again, Jesus proclaims that he is only saying those things that he has heard of the Father. In verse 27, 28, they understood not that he spoke to them of the Father, but Jesus said to them, when you've lifted up the Son of Man, then shall you know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things. John says the people still didn't understand that he was speaking to them about the Father. How could they not understand this? Well, for one, the Jews were not big on viewing God as a father anyway, because they saw him mainly as a Lord over them. That kept them from experiencing the relational aspects of God, which also kept them from seeing that he personally cared for them. Amen. They knew that he would bless them for doing good and curse them for doing evil. But that was just about all they felt that God was interested in. You know, Jesus claims to be the son of man again here. Is that a messianic term? Yes, it is. And someone would have to go a mighty long way to try and prove that Jesus wasn't revealing himself to the people at this time. He told them when they lift him up, they will know that he is the one. This lifting up is mentioned a few times here in the book of John, John 3 and 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the son of man be lifted up. And once again in John 12 and 32 through 34, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This he said, signifying what death he should die. The people answered him, We have heard out of the law that Christ abideth forever. And how sayest thou, the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? This might even be an allusion to Isaiah 52 and 13, which is connected to the crucifixion. So you think Isaiah may have even made a reference to the crucifixion? Yeah, let me read it to you and I'll show you for yourself. Isaiah 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. That word exalted means lifted up. He's going to be lifted up and he'll be very high. That's exactly what happened in the crucifixion. They literally lifted him up on high. Once again, the word he is added by the translators here. So the true phrasing that you would see in the original Greek is when I am lifted up, you will know that I am. You know, this sure seems to be another open declaration of his identity, doesn't it? 
It does. He said that he does nothing of himself. He was doing this because the father wanted him to reveal himself to them. That's similar to what he said back in John 5 and 19. As the father hath taught him, he speaks these things. Well, this was the reason he was saying these things to them, for it had been ordained by the father. That's right. This is just another beautiful picture of the Godhead working in unison, harmony, and perfection together. All right, let's look at the last two verses, verse 29 and 30. And he that sent me is with me. The Father hath not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. As he spake these words, many believed on him. Jesus declared that the Father who sent him is with him, for he hasn't left him alone. Then he gives a reason for this and says that it's because he always does those things that please the Father. That's right. I believe we must get something straight right here. First off, I believe this is said mainly for our benefit, for this would imply that the Father might not be with him unless this were so. We know that the Godhead is inseparable. Even if Christ was here on the earth, they were still inseparable. The fullness of the Godhead was present in him bodily, according to Colossians. Yeah, the main reason I believe that this was stated in this manner right here is for our benefit, really. This tells us that if we will always do those things that please the Father, he'll be with us, and he'll not leave us alone. Now, I'm not claiming that we can be perfect as Jesus, but we must strive to do those things that please the Father. I believe we should. This verse reminds me of what John said back in 1 John 3 and 22. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him, because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. John stated that if we will keep the commandments of the Lord, we are doing those things that are pleasing in his sight. The Greek word arestos is what we see as please here. It means proper or desired. Jesus always does that which is proper, and he always does that which the Father desires him to do. I believe that John took what Jesus said right here in John 8 and 29 and used it towards us is what I really feel like he was doing there in 1 John 3 and 22. Yes, as we're winding this episode to a close, I want to point out that as Jesus was speaking, many of the people assembled there began to believe on him. Yeah, and we see that phrase often in the book of John that many of them believed on him. John seven thirty one, John 10 and 42, John eleven forty five, John 12 and 11, John 12 and 42. I find it interesting, though, that in this verse, we're told that many of them believed on him. But the next two verses seem to dig into whether they truly believed unto salvation or not. You know, you always try to end on a hook, don't you? What do you mean? You try to hook them into being interested enough to come back the next week, don't you? Well, let's just say the Bible is interesting enough. It has its own hook mechanism built into it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Good lesson today, Brother Donnie. I enjoyed it. Got a question in here. All right. I know you like this part of the the show, so here we go. Why did God call for a blood sacrifice? Why was it blood? And not water. Good question. I've heard this a few times through the years. I've been asked this. We were once the possession of the Lord, but because of sin, we became bound unto Satan. The Lord then paid the ultimate price to buy us back. You know what he paid, don't you? He gave his life by shedding his blood. Yes. Thus, he redeemed us from the hand of the enemy. What is the price he paid? How did he purchase us? What kind of currency would the Lord of heaven use to buy someone? Paul says we have redemption through his blood. Amen. Okay. This blood was the precious blood of Jesus Christ, as Peter said in 1 Peter 1 and 19. Let me read you this. 
I'm going to go ahead and read verse 18 and 19 together. For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. We were redeemed. We were paid for. We were bought by the blood of Christ. And Peter says it's precious blood. This tells us that he's precious because his blood, the only way his blood would be precious is if he's precious. Precious also means highly valuable. There's no price you could put upon that. All right. In other words, it's priceless. This also tells us something about soteriology as well, which means salvational aspects. The shedding of the blood is what we're redeemed by. So it is a necessary component of salvation. Now, I am not saying that he shed his blood to pay the devil to release us. God is the one who demanded payment. Jesus didn't shed his blood to give it to the devil. This was for the Father. All right, this connects us back to Hebrews 9 and 22, where we're told that there is no remission of sin without the shedding of blood. Let me read you that. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood, there is no remission. This also links in with Leviticus 17 and 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. So we see why the blood was shed. It's the only thing that can make atonement for us. It's the only thing that can forgive sin. The reasoning for this is that the life of the flesh is in the blood. This price was not paid to the devil, but to God who demanded the price. Jesus gave his life so we won't have to give ours. Not only is the blood firmly anchored to redemption, it's also very much tied to atonement And the substitutionary part is very huge. I know there's an attack on that right now among a lot of groups, and it's even come among some of our Pentecostal holiness people. This is what the blood did for us. Paul said the blood is a necessity for the forgiveness of sins. The blood is the only sufficient payment for sin. Therefore, it is what secured the redemption process, forgiving our old debt of sin. Interestingly enough, Paul basically said the same thing in Ephesians 1 and 7, where there he says that it's paid according to the riches of God's grace. Let me read that for you. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. There we see that redemption and forgiveness both come through the blood, not just any blood, but the blood of Christ, according to the riches of his grace. The part about forgiveness is spoken about in Acts 5 and 31. And there it's also linked with redemption in Jesus Christ again. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. God exalted the only one who could give that repentance. The only one who could give forgiveness. The only one who could do this is the only one who shed his blood. Jesus is the only one who has ever paid that price. And he's the only one who could pay the price for our sin. As a matter of fact, if you want to read more about it, go to Romans chapter 3. Look at verses 21 down through 28. Paul says that we are declared righteous for the remission of our past sins through the shedding of the blood. Now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Listen to verse 24 and 25. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth 
to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. There you go. To declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. And then it goes on and he describes what all this means to the believer. I encourage you, read all of these passages and anchor down on why God says that it would be by the blood. Water might wash the body, but blood cleanses the soul. Oh, my friends, there's nothing more precious than the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. Remember, friends, if you have a Bible question or a question regarding how news, current events, or things going on in our culture are connected to Scripture, drop us an email at dkministries1977 at yahoo.com. That's dkministries1977 at yahoo.com. We hope you've enjoyed this episode today, sharing God's Word. But until next time. May God bless you all. Be sure and come back Friday, February the 16th for special edition number 121, our 16th Q&A. Will it change my heart all around? Put my feet back on the ground, got along. Now for heaven I want to go. I want to go. I want to go. To that land where the milk and honey flow Oh, I've heard of such a place I can't go there by God's grace Never seen it, but I know I want to go